Live from the JLE in London, you're listening to History for the Curious, the podcast. 20 minutes with Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch, hosted by myself, Menat Reisner. Join us as we cross continents, sail through the centuries, tracing lives, uncovering events, and following epic journeys to reveal the untold stories and the mysteries that have impacted our history and shaped us into who we are today. Hi and welcome back, Rabbi Hirsch. We have now finished the Prague series, and as promised, we are starting a new three-part series on controversial prayers. Now, today is called the Tsar, which took place in 1861. Where did this take place? Well, pretty much in Russia, but as we will see, it actually is echoed all over Europe because many synagogues, even to this day, even in northwest London, have a tefillah that is said in public before Musaf on Shabbos for the well-being of the ruler. Obviously, in a benign and democratic malchus shel chesed, we understand this sentiment. What if we turn back to the previous centuries when the malchus didn't contain much discernible chesed. What did the Jews do then? Did they still pray for the king? So looking at Russian machzerim from the 1800s and Russia at the time, their empire included most of Poland, the Ukraine, Lithuania, you find in these sidurim the tefillah for the welfare of the Tsar, in which the Russian monarch is described as our master, the Tsar, the great, the righteous, Tsar Alexander Nikolaevich, Alexander II. And then it goes on to offer blessings to his wife and to their son, the heir to the throne, the eventual Alexander III, which means that despite the oppressive government, Jews in the Russian Empire prayed for the Tsar's well-being, which is quite eye-opening, I guess. Surely there must be a source for this. They didn't just make that up. Well, in a way, the sources go back to Tanakh. Jews have offered prayers for the well-being of their rulers for millennia. As mentioned last week regarding the Nodeh Behuda, the Mishnah in Pirkei Ovis, almost 2,000 years ago, records the statement in chapter 3 in the name of Rav Hanina that we should pray for the welfare of the government for if not for the fear of it, people would devour others alive. So it's not purely to please them or for a Kiddush Hashem, it's actual tefillah. In other other words, a world without a proper governing body is a world with chaos and anarchy and is considered worse than a government which may be anti-Jewish. Rabbanina was in fact echoing an even earlier source, that of the prophet of Novi, who uh, recorded a prophecy from Hashem telling him, Seek the welfare of the city to which I have exiled you, and pray to Hashem on its behalf, for with its peace you will have peace. Meaning, instruct the Jews to pray for the Babylonians, who have just exiled the Jews and destroyed their Beis HaMikdash, and Hashem's command to the Novi is therefore astonishing but it's a biblical reference to pray for a government that was no friend of the Jews. And we have further sources 
in the book of Ezra, Darius, the king of Persia, and this is before the time of the Purim story, instructed Persian officials in Eretz Yisrael to help the Jews rebuild the temple. And he says that they are to be given daily, without fail, sacrifices so that they can pray for the life of the secular, the non-Jewish king and his sons. Meaning the Jews will offer sacrifices for the non-Jewish king's welfare using animals provided by the Persian realm. Although I guess it's not clear if this was an existing ongoing custom or was imposed upon the Jews by Darius as a quid pro quo for helping them rebuild the temple. But we see the concept anyway. And then there's a Gomorrah in Yuma, which has the famous story of Shimon HaTzadik and Alexander the Great. The Samaritans, whose temple was on Mount Gerizim, asked Alexander to destroy our temple in Yerushalayim. And Shimon HaTzadik leads a delegation to meet Alexander and says to him, Is it possible that a house in which we pray for you and your kingdom, that idol worshippers should deceive you into destroying it? Moving forward a thousand years to medieval times, we come across the earliest recorded prayer for a monarch in the town records of Worms from the year 1096. The prayer was recited in the style of a Misha Berach, but a similar one can be found in a Siddha from Spain, printed a couple of hundred years later, around the year 1300. And the Sefer Avodram writes that the custom is to bless the king and to pray to help him and empower him over his enemies. And in the Cairo Gneza, we find two examples of public prayer for the caliph by Jews in Islamic countries. These are dated to around 1130, but they are written in Arabic, which may indicate that the government insisted on the language and on the text. And the particular fragment that we have has prayers for Yom Kippur on the reverse side. So the assumption is that it was said on Yom Kippur, this prayer for the king, and therefore perhaps only once or twice a year. Then we have the Colboy in early 14th century Provence, who says that on Shabbos, after Haftarah, there are places where they bless the king and then the congregation, which means by now not only is this prayer established, but its location within Tefillah has now been fixed. At the end of the 15th century, Sidurim began to appear with a formalized prayer for the monarch, which begins with the well-known phrase, He who gives victory to kings and dominion to princes, which is a poetic prayer, drawing heavily on verses from Tanakh, although we don't know who composed this tefillah, but a short time after its appearance, it had already become popular across the European continent. And with the invention of printing in the late 15th century, we can find it with little variation in Sidurim from Spain, Poland, Italy, even from Yemen. 
And it is perhaps the yearning for Moshiach in the early 1500s, which followed expulsions from so many different countries that contributed to its uh, rapid spread, potentially. Then we have Rabbanasha ben Israel, who lobbies in the 17th century for the return of the Jews to England after a 350-year break. And he cites this prayer of Hanesin Shua in his work, The Humble Addresses to His Highness the Lord Protector, to Oliver Cromwell, in 1655 to demonstrate the loyalty of the Jews. Now, generally, the prayer had the names of the monarch and his family, and therefore, unlike the rest of the Siddha, which obviously didn't receive many updates, this particular one changed over time as monarchs changed or died, which uh, created, I guess, a collector's range of old Siddurim, but it caused no end of problems if a war broke out, and then the Siddha, which had extolled the virtues of a previous sovereign, had to be hastily amended. Indeed, we find that because of certain border cities, which changed hands with quite some frequency, that there is a machsa where the printer hedged his bets by including a prayer for Kaiser Franz Joseph at the top of the page and for Tsar Nicholas at the bottom. <laughs> so, you know, you needed to make sure that you were doing the right thing at the right time. I guess there must have been an area that you could have folded the page <laughs> so that you couldn't see both at the same time. And one of the earliest known recitations of a specific prayer for the English royal family took place in 1642 at the Amsterdam Synagogue. At that time, Jews were still officially barred from England, and the Jews had a prayer first for the Dutch rulers and followed this by one for the English. And uh, to round this off, Samuel Pepys, who is the famous diarist in the middle of the 17th century, records a visit to a shul on Simchas Torah in 1663. And he makes two observations. Firstly, the decorum was terrible, but I guess going on Simchas Torah was not ideal. And secondly, he writes of the fact that a special prayer was said in Hebrew for the king. Mm. So what is the verdict on these prayers for the non-friendly monarchs? Well, the Jews have often found themselves under the rule of assorted forms of government, some of whom were dictators. Yet the Hassam Sofa, for instance, in his responsa, talks of the virtues of praying for a king, and he notes that Hashem commanded Moshe Rabbeinu to accord honor even to Pari. Rashi makes mention of this on at least two occasions, despite the fact that Pari had enslaved the Jews. What is the reasoning behind this? Well, that goes back to what we said based on the mission in Pirkei Ovis, that it is still better to have a ruler than none. Right. And we also find an example from a 15th century manuscript of the Jews of Aragon, where the Jews ask God to bless, guard, protect, and help our Lord King Don Fernando. 
May the King of Kings put in his heart and in the heart of all his advisers mercy to do good to us and to the entire house of Israel, to quote. But the interesting thing here is that Fernando is probably none other than King Ferdinand, who, together with his queen, Isabella, expelled the Jews from Spain in 1492. Having said that, if this is written earlier on in the 15th century, his relations with the Jews were much more cordial. So all in all, it would appear that there are grounds for praying for wicked rulers. And there is a photo I have of the Coral Synagogue in Moscow, where there is a tefillah on the wall for the rulers of the Soviet Union. And this is during the bad old days of the Iron Curtain. Now, there was, I would say, obviously, one exception to this when a particular regime was almost founded on the premise of the annihilation of the Jews, and that was Nazi Germany. The Jewish press in those days, while it still existed, would print quotations from Tanakh that could, in a veiled way, give expression to the emotions they were feeling. However, obviously, they could not be open about it. But the prayer for the welfare of the government would have been ridiculous. On the other hand, to omit it completely might be interpreted as insubordination to the government. And the Germans did pay attention to what was being said. Famously, or I guess infamously, they arrested Rabshimon Schwab in 1936 for a drosha that he was alleged to have given about Hitler, Yemachshmai, and it was two months until the charges were dropped. Do we know what he said? So he used the word Vermittler, and it was reported that he had said Hitler. And hmm. he was arrested, I think it was, on Shushan Purim in 1936. Now, the Jews in Nazi Germany could not discuss what to do in any public forum or in any newspaper but in the end, the Gestapo relieved the Jews of their indecision when the prayer was prohibited. So I guess the Tsars would be seen in pretty much the same way as any other ruler of the Jews. Well, sometimes the prayers got a little carried away with themselves. The case of Alexander II is particularly interesting because as far as 19th century Russian autocrats he did some decent things for the Jews. He abolished the cruel Cantonist decree, which ripped Jewish children away from their families into decades of forced military service. He allowed some Jews to attend high school. And while his ultimate goal was still Russification, he generally promoted a gentler form of it than others. Never heard the term Russification. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Now, he signed the Emancipation Manifesto in 1861, which freed some 23 million serfs across the Russian Empire. And even though for the two and a half million Jews living in Russia's Pale of Settlement, this manifesto held little to no meaning, nonetheless, the editors of the Hamelitz newspaper, which was a strongly secular Jewish weekly published in Odessa, celebrated the Emancipation Manifesto and Alexander II, its signer, as if it were 
the high holidays, the Yomim Neroim, and Alexander was God. He was virtually deified, which was obviously taking things too far. The paper praised the Tsar of Russia on its publication's cover, and it wasn't subtle. You know, on Rosh Hashanah, in our Tvila, in our liturgy, we say, Hayom Haras Elam. Today the world came into being. These words opened the article published by Hamelitz, as well as the words, Today the success of our land came into being. Today a king of justice and righteousness will stand. And it came with the refrain, Avinu Malkenu, as Alexander is referred to as Avinu Malkenu Harachamon, our father, our king, the merciful. And the icing on the cake was the bracha of Shachianu. He has granted us life, sustained us, and allowed us to reach this day, directed obviously towards him as opposed to the king of the universe. Now, in 1881, 20 years later, an assassin's bomb killed Alexander II, and he died in the same room in which he had signed the Emancipation Manifesto. His son would go on to rule with an iron fist and usher in an era of state-supported anti-Semitism, but the prayer continued, though. It shows if you put too much faith in the leaders, Hashem could just flip that switch. Absolutely, yep. Even in recent times, one can look at Donald Trump as being some sort of a, a deity almost yes, <laughs> amongst in, international. Almost, yes, yes. And um, we still say Hanois and Chua, the Loshan you mentioned before, we still use the same expression of tefillah. Is it completely unchanged? Are all the words the same as they were a couple of hundred years ago? So some changes happened um, and they were the result of a complete change in direction, I guess which actually had nothing to do with the Jews per se. For instance, the American Revolution, where the new reality was not simply a change in leadership. It was now a country which had an elected leader, and the prayer was seen as potentially inappropriate as it stood. So although the original Hanoi Sintra was published in New York in 1760, although amusingly in terms of its historical record, there is one version that prays for King George II and another one that uh, prays for the American rulers and officials. But by 1782, after independence, the uh, British royal family had been eliminated, uh, textually, <laughs> that is. And the new version referred to the president, the commander-in-chief of the army, and the Congress and all kings and potentates in alliance with America. The American version was depersonalized, no names of people, it was just their positions. Yes, and that would be the format they adopted going forward. But interestingly, it also changes how it relates to the rulers. The Jews are no longer dependent on handouts, so to speak. They are part of this nation, and they want it to succeed, but it's coming from a place of democracy, not dependency. In fact, in the mid-1800s, a new version appears, which, in abandoning mention of the word king, now abandons the mention 
of the King of Kings. It's entitled Ribbon Kol Ilomim, the Master of All the Worlds, because to Americans, the mere mention of the word king at the time would bring people to break out in a cold sweat. Mm. And whereas that prayer still looks forward to redemption, it is unclear from the text whether the redemption may actually be residing within the shores of the free in the USA, since it appropriates uh, idyllic descriptions of Eretz Israel and uses them for the USA. So it's certainly ambiguous. You have verses such as, Venasata Gishmehem Beitam, and you shall make it rain in its time, uh, you know, Apostle at the beginning of Bechokosai. And it asks for Sukas Shloimecha, the peace that we normally ascribe to Yushalayim and Eretz Yisrael. Now, interestingly, the prayer's intent through the ages, which could be recognized by, I guess, well educated worshippers, concealed hints of spiritual resistance. Yirmiyahu, which is cited at the end of the tefillah, speaks of the ingathering of the exiles and the restoration of the Malchus based David, the Davidic dynasty. But not mentioned in the prayer is the fact that the verses just before the one used calls for vengeance. It's not found in the prayer itself, but it was likely on the minds of some of the Jews who recited it. <laughs> and therefore, these Jews praying aloud for the welfare of the sovereign upon whom their security depended between the lines were also longing for a more permanent solution to their security. And it was a call for rescue, redemption and revenge. And all of this goes out of the window with this new American version. And this new version would be used for 60 years, even by the Orthodox, and it would survive into the 20th century. And then there is an altogether different type of prayer for the state, for the country at large, really, an example of which can be seen from 1803, when the third of Cheshvan was called as a fast day in England. And the language used for justifying the fast was in order to obtain pardon of our sins and supplications for averting those heavy judgments which our manifold provocations, our sins in other words, have most justly deserved, and for imploring his blessing and assistance, that of God, capital H. So you have here a call to a fast day and a day of prayer in England. But the fascinating thing is that the fast was not proclaimed by the Jews, but by the government in anticipatory fear of an invasion by Napoleon, for which plans had already been drawn up to evacuate Parliament from London. So the government told the entire country to fast? Correct. Yes. In fact, specifically the Jews. No, 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 no. The proclamation reads, I'll quote, 
putting our trust in the Almighty that he will graciously bless our armies, both by sea and land, we hereby command a public day of fasting and humility to be observed throughout our United Kingdom, called England and Ireland, and for the more solemnizing of the same, we have given directions to the archbishops to compose a form of prayer suitable to this occasion, to be used in all places of public worship. England's come a long way from then. <laughs> yes, and, and this wasn't the only time England proclaimed the fast back in the day. At the approach of the Spanish Armada in 1588, during the plague of 1603, even for natural events, the earthquake in Lisbon, and we find then that Rabbi Nieto, the Smardi chief rabbi, gave a drosha in 1756 about this and regarding the fast. Now, this practice is unknown today. Yes, we've come away from, I guess, less religious societies. It continued throughout the 18th and 19th centuries, and therefore during the Napoleonic Wars, the Crimean War, and it spread because in America, this tradition of a day of national fasting and prayer was transferred from England, and there are at least uh, six occasions that the Continental Congress proclaimed one, and subsequently during the War of 1812, and then in August 1849 because of a plague of cholera. And did the Jews keep to it? Did Absolutely. they fast? Yes, no, this was, they were loyal to the government and to the people both in England and in the United States. What about the Archbishop's Prayer? So there it was something that would have been, I guess what we would call nowadays gender neutral. It wouldn't, <laughs> uh, yes, any anything that uh, referred explicitly to Christianity would have been taken out and uh, would have been understood as such. It would not have caused any waves. It's now, almost hard to believe this. Yes, yeah, yeah, that this fast was proclaimed by the government, not even by the church, but by the government. And an added element to the fast was the drosha, which in 1803 in England was given by the chief rabbi, Solomon Hirschel, but it would eventually become the focus of this day. And for the message for the rabbi to communicate on this day, they would have to assess what their listeners needed to hear. For instance, how should they speak about the enemy? Should they emphasize that the enemy is evil, uh, is the other, quote-unquote, or the common human bonds that they shared with the congregants? When you think about, for instance, World War I, where there were Jews fighting in the armies on both sides, the German, the Austrian, the Russian, the French, the British. So, you know, how exactly do you relate to the enemy? And Rabbi Sabato Moraes, an Italian-born rabbi in Philadelphia, had a similar, in fact, an even greater conundrum to ponder in 1863, because the 4th of July, 1863, was a Shabbos, and was unusual for three reasons. It was Independence Day, uh, which is obviously an occasion for celebration of national identity. It was the 17th of Tammuz which is a day of mourning and fasting that begins the three weeks. And this contrast in moods between the American and Jewish calendars created the challenge, and it would reoccur, still does reoccur, periodically. But there was a third component that made the 1863 date unique. 
It was the conclusion of the Battle of Gettysburg. And this battle would be the decisive one in winning the Civil War for the North and President Lincoln. But that Shabbos morning, the news of the outcome of the battle was not yet accessible to Moray in Philadelphia. It was a three-day battle altogether. So when he speaks from the pulpit, it was unclear whether the, the South, the Confederate armies, would break through the Union lines and threaten Philadelphia, Baltimore, even Washington. Though it is quite appropriate for us, the British, that uh, the three weeks begins with the Independence Day. That's sort of, it's not a coincidence for us. I guess so, yes. And therefore, you know, he wasn't sure what to focus on. This rabbi was an interesting individual, born in 1823 in Livorno in Italy, and his father's family had Portuguese converso roots. He emigrates to London in 1845 and is affiliated with the Bevismark Spanish and Portuguese congregation and establishes a relationship with Sir Moses Montefiore, who was also born in Livorno. In 1851, he leaves London for America, where he becomes a rabbi in the Svardi Mikveh Yisrael Synagogue in Philadelphia, a position that he holds until his death in 1897. And his funeral is the largest public event held for an American Jewish leader in the 19th century. So he's a well-known popular figure, but he has this issue as to what he should speak about. And maybe his travels and speeches will feature in a future podcast when we do a series of four on early immigration to North America. Very fascinating. The, the prayer for the Queen is usually said quite uh, almost quickly. We don't really ponder about it. And there's such a long history behind it. That's, that was really fascinating. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Robert Hirsch. That brings episode one of Controversial Prayers in History to an end. And next week, do we have a title? Next week will be Amsterdam. That's its title at the moment. Okay. Thank you very much for joining us. As usual, any comments and feedback should be sent to podcasts at jle.org.uk. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Robert Hirsch. Thank you.